This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Un-American. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock. He's Jeremy Wallace. You can find me at quorumreport.com for all the insider political knowledge you need to have. And Jeremy's work, of course, is always at houstonchronicle.com and expressnews.com down in San Antonio. And what a week in the news, Jeremy. We have uh, the vice president of the United States weighing in on what Texas is doing on the border. I am going to take a little bit of credit for you and me both here, uh, on this. It seemed that when we were talking about this before, we were the ones to really report out the fact and offer this analysis that the Democrats were really on the attack and they seemed to have found their voice about this. And they kind of had the Republicans back on their heels a little bit, you know, back on the back foot. Um, where was Abbott? As you said, he was traveling abroad. I still don't think that that's, you know, a reason he can't speak out about the thing that he has, you know, tried to make his signature issue, border security. Uh, but that all changed this week. The Republicans are responding to that in a big way. It seems like a full court press now all across conservative media to try to make the case that what Texas is doing on the border is, is not just, you know, not offensive, but it's essential. That's the way the Republicans are talking about it. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's turned into like I've becoming a minor legal expert. I think I'm going to go for my law degree uh, because of how many okay. court cases I'm having to shuffle through right now between the feds, the state, you know, Eagle Pass residents back and forth. You get the picture. Now, Vice President Kamala Harris said that the buoy system that we've reported on here, that that uh, the floating barrier in the wall or a barrier, sort of a floating wall uh, on the river, she said that that is inhumane and un-American. And she said a lot of the other things the Abbott administration is doing uh, on the border right now really uh, just run counter to a lot of the core principles of our country. In Texas, we see reports that authorities have pushed children and pregnant women who crossed the Rio Grande back into the river. People who refused to provide water to other human beings who are in deadly 100 degree heat. Inhumane, outrageous, and un-American. Governor Abbott was asked to respond to that during an appearance on Fox News Channel. And when you hear the vice president say there are authorities pushing children and pregnant women back into the river, you know, it's a humanitarian, inhumane, outrageous, un-American, she says. How do you respond to that? 
she needs to be reminded about the fact that the United Nations itself two years ago declared the border between the United States and Mexico as the deadliest land border in the world that was under the Biden administration. Under the Biden administration, you had 53 people perish in the back of a tractor trailer truck just outside of San Antonio because of Biden's open border policies. Because of Biden's open border policies, fentanyl is a leading cause of death in the United States among people between 18 and 45. Texas law enforcement alone has seized enough fentanyl to kill every man, woman, and child in the entire country. On Newsmax, on the Chris Salceda show, Abbott went even further. If it were not for Texas law enforcement, it's incalculable the number of Texans and Americans who would have lost their lives. Texas is stepping up as the fighter for the freedom and sovereignty of this country, and we need the United States to step up and do its job. A little over the top there, Jeremy. What did you think when you saw that? Well, I, well, we got to take a step back here because so now this is the week that you know, I can't believe it's the same week, but you know that the federal government actually began to sue the state of yeah. Texas mm-hmm. over these buoys that are in the water, and including you know the, the case also involves some of that razor wire that is like in the water. Uh, none of that's supposed to be in the water, and so we've started the kind of the legal fight on this thing. And, and it's funny in the Department of Justice you know lawsuit they say like it, not only is this like dangerous for Border Patrol trying to get access and dangerous for the migrants coming across, but it's also upsetting Mexico, mm-hmm. which had me in this country music conundrum. You know, at one point, I, you know, I'm thinking, okay, you know, that's totally Mark Chestnut saying it's Texas's fault, right? Mm-hmm. He, you know, Beaumont native, you blame it song, on Texas, take a look. yeah, right, mm-hmm. yeah, blame it on Texas. But then I'm like, wait, George Strait. Blame it, on Mexico, Blame it on Mexico probably applies if you're, well, you know, a, a conservative right now going, they're the ones who are doing it. We shouldn't have right. any, you know, support for them. Is there any middle ground like a Pat Green somewhere between Texas and Mexico? That maybe, could work. Maybe there's, that could work. Maybe, there's some bl- maybe there's some blame to go around. Uh, look, I, when I hear Abbott saying all this, uh, you know, that uh, your kids are going to die uh, and, uh, you know, every man, woman and child in this country could be killed, you know, with the amount of fentanyl that's been seized. Uh, you know, by uh, Texas uh, law enforcement uh, along the border, um, it, it sounds a little, not just a little over the top. Obviously, not every man, woman, and child is engaging in the kind of activity that you end up, you know, getting a fentanyl dose at all, uh, right? I mean, and you do have Republicans in this state who have been criticized for not doing the things that you would do to save people's lives. From fentanyl, like not supporting fentanyl test strips, which was you know opposed exactly. by opposed by Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. I'm reminded of the debate over the needle exchange programs, uh, you know, where you had some Republicans, and we have Republicans in Texas now who are in favor of those fentanyl test strips to try to keep people safe. Um, but you have these these sort of throwback thoughts, uh, you know, that that get thrown around by thought leaders uh, in Texas uh, that make it sound as if you you know if you have the fentanyl test strips, then that's going to send the message to people that it's okay to just you know, do things that might have fentanyl in them. Just like if you had the needle exchange program that, oh, that would mean that people might do drugs. Well, they're doing the drugs. I remember uh, a state uh, senator, a Republican from east of Dallas, uh, Bob Dole, very conservative uh, Republican, who was beaten in his primary, at least in part based on that issue. He supported the needle exchange program because he said, look, these, these people are doing uh, drugs. We want to keep them you know, safe. Uh, and, and he said it was a Christian thing to do uh, was to try to look out for people in their lives. So it seems that we're, you know, we're, just, we're just doing this tough on the border, you know, tough law enforcement 
thing without doing the other smart things that you would do to actually keep people safe from these uh, these threats. Yeah, and it's a crazy political game, you know. Like, look, there's a reality on the ground in Eagle Pass, and y'all have heard me talk about this for for weeks now. That it's it's gut wrenching. It's it's cruel, you know. It's like you see, like you know, when you see a piece of shard clothing with blood on it on the razor wire, you know, like it takes you someplace. You don't even before you see the pictures of people tangled up in it. But 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 look at what's happened politically here. This week alone, we have the Department of Justice now talking about this. It's, this came up in uh, a congressional hearing where Sheila Jackson Lee raised questions to Homeland you know, Security Secretary uh, Mayorkas about this mm-hmm. topic. Yep. Uh, you have Kamala Harris talking about Chicago. And it's like, and, and from, from a very pure Republican battle zone politics, this is exactly what you wanted. You know, Greg Abbott versus Joe Biden. You know, the White House has finally, you know, started to directly talk about him and directly talk about what he's doing. And mm-hmm. he is more than happy to go on a Newsmax to talk to those same primary voters he needs to find more love with, right? Just to become more popular and bigger. Because look, every politician, that's all they want to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. They want to be bigger <laughs> than what they are, right? And so he's getting exactly what he wants out of this. But there's a Democratic part too, like you and I have mm-hmm. talked about on this show repeatedly. It's like, this is the first time Democrats have had a clear link to talk about the border, you know, in a long time. You know, this is akin to when you know, Donald Trump was doing the child separation policy, when all of a yeah. sudden they all found their voice. This is one where they're like, oh my gosh, you know, like, you know, as the Houston Chronicle has reported, Benjamin Warman, you know, it's like women being tangled up in razor wire and having a miscarriage. That is scary stuff. Incredible. Uh, I want to go here to uh, Joaquin Castro who was on WFAA with uh, reporter Jason Whiteley, and he was among those Democrats saying that President Biden needs to do more. We want the President of the United States, of course, to speak up. I want the federal government to take action. But there is one person who is responsible for this, and that is Governor Greg Abbott. Last thing here, there's a state investigation, the Office of Inspector General is investigating from DPS. Uh, There are interviews like this with different members of Congress, different leaders uh, in the area. But is this going to be anything more than a headline, do you think? It's got to be, Jason, because these are, I mean, this is uh, inhumane. This is barbaric. Uh, If it's only a headline, if we're not hearing about this next week or next month, if there's no action that is taken, if the president doesn't say something, then I think it reflects a failure of American society. The chair of the Mexican-American Legislative Caucus in the Texas House, Victoria Niave Criado, who's a Dallas County Democrat, said it's really unfortunate that the various levels of government are not working together on this. And instead, they're doing nothing uh, but fighting, as you pointed out, Jeremy. We need our federal government and our state government to talk to each other rather than throwing punches. This is an issue that we need comprehensive immigration reform at the federal level, and we need humane policies at the state level. This shouldn't be a partisan issue when people are dying on our border. They need to just talk to each other and really um, address this issue. And that's what we as a caucus are, you know, that's why we want to make sure that we're having these discussions as a legislative body about what needs to be done, really, uh, regardless of party. 
When was the last time, Jeremy, that, and I like her optimism, but when was the last time that Republicans and Democrats had a serious conversation with each other and not just talking past each other uh, about this issue? When would that have been? Uh, in my mind, it would be 2007, maybe, going back yeah, to when George it. W. Bush, it, it, he was trying to push immigration reform, and there was a window uh, where you had a Republican president who was interested in uh, a real overhaul of the nation's immigration and border security laws, right? And he had a Democratic Congress to work with. And that was a moment that was born out of divided government after Republicans took, as he said, as Bush said at the time, he said, we took a Texas thumping last night when he spoke the next day after the election the Democrats had won, uh, and they, you know, they had the House of Representatives, and Bush sought to take advantage of the moment and move forward on this. We have not had an update to our immigration laws in this country since the administration of Ronald Reagan. And is there anybody listening who thinks that the realities of immigration today match the regulations that were put in place back in the 1980s? It's ridiculous when when uh, when Abbott and Cruz and whoever else, when they say, just follow the laws that are on the books. Is there anybody listening who really thinks that all the laws that, on, that are on the books make sense and should never be changed? Really? Think of it this way. Changing the law really isn't that hard. It just takes a will to do it, right? At, at the Texas Capitol, they change the laws of the state of, the, of Texas every two years. Do it all the time. Not a big deal. Just need majority votes, change the law, happens all the time. Look at the stress and strain that we now have along our border because, because we have folks who are dedicated to enforcing laws that don't make any sense anymore. Sure, a big amnesty under Reagan made a lot of – put it this way. Republicans are supporting a reform that included amnesty under Reagan, right? They're still supporting the same set of laws that set up the amnesty under, under Reagan. And they're saying that's what makes sense in the year 2023 – Give me a break. Yeah. Oh, and, and to to your point, you nailed it. I can tell you with, with pretty good certainty that, you know, it died on August in August of 2007 because I was there at the meeting in mm -hmm. which U.S. Representative Mario Diaz-Balart uh, from Florida and Luis Gutierrez from Chicago were making the, you know, one last ditch effort to try to work out a deal on immigration reform. They thought they were close. They thought they had one more shot under the Boehner, uh, you know, speakership uh, right. in Congress. And I was mm -hmm. there outside the restaurant where those two guys met. And I, you know, they come out of it. I talked to Mario diaz Bolart right after. And he goes, it looks like we're done. That was the last time we had a legitimate conversation. You saw the Gang of Eight, you know, years later when Marco mm -hmm. Rubio and John McCain right. joined and with you know Ted Kennedy, mm -mm. and they had the the apparatus kind of building, but it got destroyed. You can see that it almost has to be like a like one of those mutual destruction moments where they all go, "Look, we know this issue is terrible for all of us. Let's just kind of sort it out and move away." Uh, but Republicans are getting too much juice out of the issue still, so there's no incentive for them to solve the problem because it riles up their base every time. It makes 71% of the people in a primary say, this is the number one issue to us. How are you going to stop Mexicans from coming to America? Right. That is what they want to hear. It's like, whether right or wrong, that is what is happening on this thing. And I think you know, and, and to the point of like the, you know, the cooperation within the governments is what's kind of shocking right now. What Texas has done in the Texas DPS this 
you know, these last three weeks has done mm -hmm. is really unprecedented. There was a point where the Border Patrol and the DPS worked together down there. You know, there was some tension, of course, but they mostly worked together. DPS would get, it would find people, call mm -hmm. in Border Patrol to take care of them. But what yeah. changed in these last couple of weeks was that the, the, the DPS literally fenced off the Border Patrol from getting to the river. They literally put razor wire in the pathway so they can't get through the fence or the razor wire uh, to get to the migrants who are in trouble. So th this is a total different game now. And, you know, you heard my orcas this week you know, as he testified before Congress. He was asked about this and he said law enforcement works best when there's cooperation. Almost the same thing he told me last year when I had an interview with him one on one. And we were talking about what, you know, he told me then, it's like, we work great with DPS. I just hope Texas doesn't start acting unilaterally on its yeah. own and doing stuff to impede our people. That's what's happening now. The, the Texas DPS is literally stopping the Border Patrol from doing their job. Right. And it's frustrating the hell out of Border Patrol guys who are like, wait, I thought we were on the same team on this thing. You know, it's like you just kind of look at their frustration. They're parked behind razor wire and fences, unable to do their jobs. The one part of the of the river that I was in, in Eagle Pass, like the Border Patrol is not only behind the fences, but they have a station set up for water mm -hmm. and shade and toilets for the migrants, you know, to help them out, the ones who are in trouble. They can't get to them. They have this center, this little humanitarian center that DPS has literally shut down because they were afraid migrants would go to the humanitarian center. Mm -hmm. It's like that is where we are in this relationship with the feds and uh, in, in the state right now. And I, I've just never seen this where, you know, now Texas, you know, DPS is just not welcoming the Border Patrol at all. Yeah, and you've been looking at all these uh, legal challenges. Now we have the DOJ coming in. Uh, I was trying to remember the last time that the federal government sued Texas, rather, you know, instead of the other way around. And here you have uh, the feds coming in to challenge this in court. I wonder if the collision course that we're on here, Jeremy, leads us to the point where, and this is when you get into a constitutional crisis, if it leads us to the point where a court orders the state to stop doing what it's doing and Abbott says no. I, I, I mean, the politics of it, I mean, look at what he's saying to, to Biden. You have, and this, I mean, we have seen Greg Abbott move in directions we never would have expected going back to 2014 when he was originally running for governor. We, we have seen him go, you know, to the Don Huffines wing of the party the Allen West wing of the Republican Party, and try to make sure that all of those people love him as well, even though they would never vote for him, and continue to blow him up on social media all the time and say that he's you know, not getting anything right when it comes to taxes or the border or anything else. They seem to have been a little more complimentary lately uh, on the border, um, but the, the political game he's playing would have Abbott, who is a former jurist, potentially saying to a court, we're not going to follow your orders, we're going to continue to do what we're doing. Yeah, and so and you know, for readers, you know, pay attention to this over the next couple of weeks here. So this is all going to come to a head really fast because uh, the feds have asked for an injunction to require those buoys be taken out of the water within 10 days of an order from a judge. So we're going to have kind of a window of you know 10 days or so if that 
injunction is accepted. I'm thinking they're going to have a good chance of that uh, simply because, you know, the, the, the provision of the law the feds are going after, it's not that you're being inhumane. They're not even, you know, dealing with that, really. Right. What they're saying is, like, you need the Army Corps engineers, you know, sign off before you put anything in navigable water. And mm-hmm. guess what? The Rio Grande is a navigable waterway. Uh, and so they're saying you never went to the feds and got a, uh, a clearance on that. And that's clear. That is pretty much you know cut and dry. Abbott, in some of those interviews, has been trying to say he doesn't think it applies. He hasn't explained why. I'm assuming mm-hmm. he thinks it's because it's a floating device and isn't – you know, moored into the river, but that's not true. It is moored. There is mm-hmm. anchors to it that's connecting it to the river. And so if that, if the river starts flooding, you know, granted we're in a big, big drought right now, but mm-hmm. if that river starts flooding, which it normally does, and, you know, especially when we get into the fall, sure. that water level is going to be affected by that buoy system. And that's where the Army Corps engineer really has a good, you know, uh, case to say, you didn't get our clearance. The law is clear that you were supposed to get our clearance and mm-hmm. you didn't. You've already admitted to that. And so so that injunction goes through. Watch for that conflict that you're talking about to potentially happen within 10 days. It'll be kind of quick. I can't mm-hmm. imagine Abbott, like you said, as a former Texas Supreme Court justice saying, yeah. I'm not going to pay attention to the law and I'm not going to do it. As like that would be kind of ridiculous on his part, uh, but I think that's going to be a really good political victory point. Potentially, he's handing over to Democrats, right? You know, mm-hmm. either way he goes on this, if he tries to fight it, as they they're going to say, "Oh, so much for the law and order guys," right? You mm-hmm. know, not listening to their own federal government uh, and a and a judge saying to take that out of the water. But more importantly, if there's a, the image of them taking the buoys out, you know, talk about handing Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Like a chance to say, not only did we stand up to Texas, but we won. We took that stuff out of the border. Here's one for humanity. You can see where, like, the, I, I can see Abbott's getting his moment to fight the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. But I think the the problem for them is once that buoy gets taken out, uh, it's going to look like Joe Biden and the Democrats won a victory here. Yeah, I'm um, I'm growing more and more pessimistic about. Greg Abbott honoring the norms. Um, you know, everybody, everybody talks about the norms of America being trashed under the uh, Trump administration and in the Trump era within the Republican Party, um, and pushing the limits of pushing the envelope. I think you know when it comes to the law on all this stuff is where Abbott is. There's another line he could cross. Is all I'm saying, which is you know a judge might say you need to take those out, and Abbott says no. And then you have a constitutional crisis. Then I wonder if the Biden administration doesn't just go take them out themselves. I heard from some Democrats this past week who were saying that they were frustrated with the Biden administration for not just sending people in there now, which he could do. I mean, think of it this way. Here you have Abbott with the, you know, uh, our state patrol, the DPS. He's got the National Guard there. If Biden moved military resources in there and moved those out, our guys would just have to sit there and watch. Right. I mean, nothing they nothing they could do at that point. Now, I'm not saying he's going to do that. In fact, I have no reason to think he would. But I keep hearing from Democrats who are saying, why doesn't the president do more on this rather than just sue Abbott? Why doesn't he just go down to the border and say, hey, you can't be in our actually you can't be in our way. This is BS. You can't have razor wire between Border Patrol and the border. Right. That everybody's tax dollars are paying for. Sense, right. Well, everyone's. Here's the thing. 
you, there's a big debate going on in Texas now about whether our tax dollars as Texas taxpayers, whether those should be used for these giant border security operations. But there is no debate as, as federal taxpayers that the Border Patrol is there to do that job. They're not for anything else. You know, Customs and Border Protection, that's what they do, right? DPS, this is extra for them. The Border Patrol, for, for our guys to be in the way, that's, um, you know, again, it's a bridge too far. Well, and, and I think you just hit on something that you know, I need to explore more in a story, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the evolution of Greg Abbott on this stuff. You know, there's a time not too long ago that people asked, why haven't you declared an emergency and, you know, shut down right. border traffic mm-hmm. or, or sent, you know, put wire up or what? Like he was asked about this stuff in the past and he would say, oh, I can't do it. Only the federal government can do. And he'd get this booing from people you know it's like there were people on the far right who just didn't accept that so abbott now you know you can see him like you know it may get you know (laughs) reversed it may get shot down but i'm gonna push it to the very end uh so now he's almost been incentivized because of the politics of the last two years of going okay it sounded crazy when alan west or don huffine said it in the primary but if i do it now it's going to be much uh, – I'm just going to put the pressure on the feds to stop me rather yeah. than have those guys chirping at me you know, in the Collin County Republican meetings and the Montgomery County you know, meetings where like, they're, they're, they still like, turn that stuff against mm-hmm. him when he says, you know, I can't deport people. And so now he's like, well, well, I guess I'm going to just push him back into the river. <laughs> you right. know? It's like well, I'll let the feds kind of you know, be the police and not me, right? Well, in a lot of ways, uh, politically, he's doing what John McCain did when he chose Sarah Palin as his running mate. He's taking those people on the fringes and moving them to the center of the party, right? He's yeah. putting them in charge, right? I mean, this is what I mean. This is what mainstreams that kind of thought, right? It becomes the mainstream Republican Party when I, when a figure like Greg Abbott embraces what Don Huffines and Alan West have been saying he should do about the border instead of holding the line and saying, actually, no. There are some things we need to respect. There are some laws that we have to respect, and we can't be the law and order party and then turn around and just break the law if we, you know, if we don't like the way things are going along the border. We should be working to change the law. We should be working to, you know, uh, have uh, the federal government step up enforcement and that sort of thing. And instead, he's uh, he's dragging the Sarah Palin wing over right in the middle, right into the governor's office, and saying, "Hey, what do you want to do about this? We'll declare an invasion. You know, we'll, we'll, not only will we push kids into the river." We'll just start shooting across the across the water. Well, I wonder when we're going to get there because, like, you know, again, not to, you know, I didn't mention Huffines by accident here. Like, right. Don Huffines said he would send more troops to the border, and when asked mm-hmm. how many he would say, he'd send, he'd say, you know, I'd send, you know, a couple of thousand to the border. And then what did Abbott do shortly thereafter? He sent ten thousand, you know, right. to top them. Remember, it was Don Huffines said he would shut down truck traffic coming illegally mm-hmm. across the ports of entry to teach Mexico a lesson. What did Abbott do? Shortly thereafter, he shut down truck traffic with Mexico uh, with that inspection thing, yeah. you know, where like all of a sudden we couldn't get avocados and stuff loaded in the, the shelves. Mm-hmm. It's like you can see there's and, – and, and even this whole declare an invasion uh, and, and, this, and declare you're protecting the sovereignty of Texas, that came from them too. It's like he absorbed that. And so like you can just kind of see like everything that Don Huffine said in that – Mm-hmm. You know, campaign. He lost the primary, but he won the primary. <laughs> you know, right. it's just kind of crazy yeah. to think of. But there's a little Don Huffines helping run this thing. 
I'm going to just take a pass on the phrase "little Don Huffines." Um, we'll, we'll continue to cover this uh, this deal with the border as it as it unfolds. As you said, Jeremy, there's going to be some quick developments uh, when it comes to the legal action on this as the DOJ fights Texas in court. Did you see this week um, the Dallas Morning News with a scoop about some text messages between a top aide to Attorney General Ken Paxton? And a very conservative uh, member of the Texas House, a guy named Jeff Leach from North Texas. Uh, and you have heard this argument over and over. It seems like for all the arguments that Paxton supporters make in this impeachment proceeding, there's just direct evidence that they're that they're wrong. So, so one of the big arguments from Tony Busby, Paxton's attorney, and others has been that this was what? It was a big surprise that the Texas House of Representatives just sort of caught them off guard, blindsided Paxton with this. It came out of nowhere. Um, it was all done in secret that the attorney general had no chance to weigh in. He, had, he Remember, they've said this over and over again in news conferences and uh, probably in their legal motions. I haven't read through all of them, uh, but I know that Paxton supporters like the Defend Texas Liberty PAC and others the Republican Party of Texas as well, has said that this was a surprise, that that the attorney general should have had a chance to weigh in before the Texas House looked into him and investigated him. Well, here are these text messages that show that Republican lawmakers in Austin were, quote, pissed about Paxton's request for taxpayers to be on the hook for settling his personal legal issues. I'll, I'll read this text message exchange to you, just a little bit of it. And this is, a, this is a text from Michelle Smith, who works for Paxton. She's worked uh, in the atten- attorney general's office, and she's worked on his campaigns. She tweets a lot in his defense. And um, Representative Leach is telling her that a lot of conservative lawmakers are angry that Paxton's asking for this $3 million settlement to be funded out of tax money. Why didn't he just pay it himself? I have an, I have a question, Jeremy. Why didn't the Defend Texas Liberty PAC, which just gave, they just gave $3 million to Dan Patrick. Why didn't they just pay the $3 million settlement? It's the same amount of money. We wouldn't yeah, be here I, now with an impeachment process, you know? Yeah. I wondered the same thing. You know, it's like right. almost the same exact money, just you know, cover it. So none of this ever comes up and we don't even ever go through an impeachment. You just right. headed the whole thing off. You had $3 million the whole time. It's like in the, in the movie Back to the Future when they show how the timeline skews. Like if you could go back to the beginning of the year, <laughs> if you could go back to the beginning of the year and defend Texas Liberty Pact, just writes a $3 million check to settle up with those whistleblowers, those very conservative attorneys who turned on Paxton. If they'd just done that, well, then Biff Tannen never would have had the Pleasure pal- Palace you know, there in, the, in, in the middle of the town. He wouldn't have had a casino see, see. there. And, when, and you yeah. know, and that... That uh, that character, of course, looks like Donald Trump, who you know yeah. Paxton and <laughs> Paxton and <laughs> Paxton and Trump has, have been thick as thieves. Well, let me let me read this exchange. Uh, it, it, Leach is saying to this woman, uh, Michelle Smith, that that Ken Paxton needs to come answer questions about this settlement agreement, and just answer and just ask you know just answer the question: Why should taxpayers pay for this? That's it. That's what the Speaker of the House wanted to know. That's what Representative Leach wanted to know and other Republicans. And I will point out again that 70% of Texas House Republicans voted to impeach Paxton after hearing all this stuff, you know, that was brought out in the hearing that they had in the General Investigating Committee, the arguments that were made publicly on the floor of the Texas House. It wasn't done in secret. 
Uh, but but going back to the beginning of the year, Leach is saying, just come answer the questions. Ken needs to come answer the questions. Here's what she says to him. This is a top aide to Paxton. She says, quote, the Christian thing to do is to ask what is going on in private. If you don't like the answer, then do whatever you want publicly. And then she and then she adds, that would be, quote, the biblical way, close quote. <laughs> Leach's response is to say, quote, you're really going to go there with me? And he's he's got a question. And I love in a text message when you put a question mark and an exclamation point. Yes. So I should read it like th- I should read it like this. You're really going to go there with me? You know, that kind of thing. She says, she says, quote, yeah, I am, close quote. And Leach says, and again, this is a private conversation with someone who he, he has been a friend with in the past. He also pointed out in the text messages that he has been a friend of Ken Paxton's in the past. Leach and Paxton are from the same part of the state. They're from Collin County. Yeah. And sure. by the way, dear listener, they do not elect liberal Republicans from Collin County, Texas. No. <laughs> it does not happen. <laughs> Here's what here, – when, when, when Smith said – yeah, you know, I am going there and telling you this is the Christian way to handle this. It's just to, to – basically she's saying – now let me paraphrase her now. What she's saying is they should handle allegations of corruption in private, that they, that they should keep that secret. Remember, the argument from all these people who support Paxton has been that the House acted in secret. And here's his top aide saying to a legislator that what they should do is handle it in secret. You can't make this up. So what Leach said – and I said he deserves a profile and courage for this. And you know, you know me, Jer- uh, Jeremy. I'm not one to offer a lot of praise for politicians. I don't do that. But in this instance, this is pretty good. He said, "Quote: I'm doing my duty faithfully and fully, and I'm confident in that." Close quote. And he also said that he would not allow for his past friendship with Paxton be prioritized over rooting out corruption. Right. So you have that unfolding this week. And I noticed that Paxton's folks went kind of quiet about all of that. I've seen the supporters of him jump on everything else. You know, the the, the impeachment managers, the, the the House members who are pursuing the impeachment in the Senate, they're not allowed to speak publicly for now in this case because we have a gag order that was put in place by the lieutenant governor who's acting as the judge who took $3 million from Paxton supporters just then. That was just reported last week. It's, it's, it's hard to fit all that into one sentence, but I just did it. And <laughs> here you have... Here you have these folks going quiet now. I, Michelle Smith, who likes to tweet a lot at people about you know her boss and what's going on with Ken Paxton. Maybe I missed it, but I saw her uh, a lot on Twitter this week. I didn't see her commenting on this exchange with Leach. The Dallas Morning News had an editorial this morning saying that he acted courageously in the situation. And that doesn't mean any of these people agree with everything Jeff Leach ever did, for sure. But... In this instance, you have, as you have pointed out, Jeremy, Republicans trying to police one of their own. The difference with what has gone on in Washington is immense, right? In Washington, it's just all tribalism. It's all Democrats versus Republicans. The Democrats going after Trump and vice versa. But here you have Republicans saying, look, we might agree with some of his work product. We like a lot of the lawsuits that he's filed against the Biden administration. In fact, when this uh, impeachment was offered on the floor of the Texas House, one of the impeachment managers, David Spiller, said, you know, he's a brilliant legal mind. I think he might have been going a little far with that. But anyway, the point is he praised his work, but said we can't have a corrupt guy in the attorney general's office. It's kind of an important office. 
Well, you know, first let me, you know, credit the Dallas Morning News and Lauren McGowey for getting yeah, sure. these, you know, these messages. It was a heck of a good fun read. <laughs> you know, if anything else, they gave like, you know, it's like it was a real good look behind the scenes. But like you hit on a really important point. Like when when, you know, Leach's responses in this thing is kind of that lesson I think we were all taught at some point from our parents. It's like, you know, assume everything that you say or whatever will someday get back to your mom. You know, just like, <laughs> yes. would you right. say that to your mom? You know, it's mm-hmm. like, you know, she's listening to everything you say. So Leach, you know, like, you know, in this exchange to to say, look, I'm going to do my job. You know, right. just like you can't like stop me from doing my job as a representative of the people. It's like that is where like you, you kind of hope everybody kind of gets that message ultimately. And look, it's better for us journalists if you don't. <laughs> but politically, it makes a lot more sense for you to realize that you are always on duty. Like always remember that there is no off duty in today's America where everything is recorded. Everybody has a video of you doing something. So you best not be sitting there going, yeah, sure. Let's do this, you know, corruption hearing behind the scenes so nobody can see it. You know, like that makes a lot of sense. The Christian thing to do would be to just kind of sweep this under the rug. The the, the biblical way to handle it would just be to be to to be not bringing this up so much. Yeah. And what part of the Bible did, you know, was there some point I missed where Moses went to the mountainside and God said, oh, psh, keep this all between us? <laughs> I don't remember that part. Right. It's like, I swear. It's like he just had the tablets and <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember any keep this on the down low until we're ready to go public. <laughs> yeah. I, I missed – apparently you missed the 11th commandment, which is, <laughs> which is, which is thou shalt not mention corruption in public. <laughs> <laughs> that would be. I've read Very my Bible. Biblical co- of you. <laughs> I've I've read my Bible cover to cover, and I didn't see anything about that in there. Um, fascinating. But one other thing, just uh, plugging my Twitter feed for a second. Uh, yesterday, uh, took a picture, put it out of the Senate floor, and they have set it up now for the trial. Have you? Did you take a look? It's um. Oh it's no, interesting. I the, that. Take a look there. The it's uh, it, it's it's kind of. Um, it's kind of one of those moments where you say we are living through history because you never see the Senate floor set up that way. It's only been set up that way three times, right? There have only been three, including this one, there have only been three impeachment proceedings in the history of the state. And so there's a witness stand right next to the dais where the lieutenant governor speaks. They, they've got that set up. And the tables, you know, they have those big glass top tables in the Senate, Jeremy. At some point, one of those used yeah. to be the press table before they banned everybody from the floor. Um, but... Those tables are now set up like you would see in a courtroom where there are uh, you know, tables for the attorneys on each side when they go to argue this coming up in September. Um, and uh, it is sort of a reminder that none of us are experts in this. I've seen some people try to sell themselves as experts in impeachments, and you can't really be one because we haven't had any almost, right? There's, there's, there's only been three of them. If somebody says, hey, I'm an expert in impeachments, I mean, I guess maybe they could say they've read the rules and they read the history of the last two. But if anybody says, you know, and, and this is why you see these big sweeping statements from Tony Busby, that I see them as really silly when anybody acts as if they know definitively how this is supposed to work. Because the Senate sets up their own rules. The Senate did that the last two times. They can set those rules yeah. almost however they want because it's a because it's a legislative proceeding. And there isn't much that can be done, you know, by a court or anyone else about the procedure or the way they do it, right? It's up to the 
it's up to the Senate how they do it. So they have all these interesting rules in place. Angela Paxton, the wife of Paxton, cannot be in the private deliberations and she can't vote, but she can be on the floor. And her presence counts toward the uh, threshold necessary for conviction, right? You have the attorneys for Paxton saying that there are three Democratic senators with a history of saying ugly things about their client, about Paxton, and so they should be dismissed as jurors because they're biased. In this case, well, what about all the Republicans who have said nice things about Paxton? Under that argument, wouldn't they also be, you know, removed, stricken as jurors? Shouldn't they be removed too? If they if they ever said any if they ever put out a press release that said the attorney general of Texas Ken Paxton has acted in a bold conservative way to fight the Biden administration, they should probably be stricken as jurors too. I think that's bogus. Uh, I do think that if the lieutenant governor, because he's been criti- you know roundly criticized for taking all that money from Paxton supporters, but I will say this: a lot of times at the Texas Capitol, a group will give a politician a certain amount of money, hoping they'll do something, and then the politician doesn't do it. That happens. That happens all the time, right? So, so stay tuned. Dear Las mean, Vegas, please read this. <laughs> yes, right. So that happens all the time. That doesn't mean he's necessarily in the tank for those folks. As I mentioned on the show last week, I think some Republican senators have gone to Patrick and said, hey, do you think there's any problem with the optics of that? Are you taking that money? And apparently Patrick said, well, no, I don't know why there would be an issue. Can't see why there would be one. Um, there are two things to watch for, I think, in the next few weeks as we get ready for this trial uh, in September, over the month of August, be thinking about these things. There are two motions. One is to strike those Democratic senators as jurors. If the, I think if the lieutenant governor even considers that, then the fix is in. I, I, I have to believe that because, because there's no argument I can see where you would strike senators who constitutionally have to be on the floor. In fact, think of it this way. His own wife, who would be the most biased person potentially, still gets to sit on the floor during the impeachment proceedings. Yeah. Right. And she could be, and as we pointed out on the show, she could be biased either way, right? She might be in the tank for him, or she might be mad at him because he was allegedly having an extramarital affair, right? So these see these Democratic senators, why should they be stricken? There's that. Then there's also a motion from the Paxton team to basically get rid of these articles of impeachment because they say they're unconstitutional, they're too vague and all this. And uh, if either of those things is even, you know, remotely considered by the lieutenant governor, if he if he gives any legitimacy to those arguments, I think that you're going to see what a lot of folks would think is just a sham of a proceeding. Instead, if this is, and I think, you know, Patrick would serve himself well to say, actually, no, we're not going to do any of that. We're going to go ahead and have a trial, two and a half weeks or so, which is what we expect based on the rules, make it at least appear to be fair because, look, this whole thing is political. All these people who say, oh, this is well, this is weaponization of the political process, it's, a, it's an impeachment proceeding. Of course it's political. It has to be political. Every I can't say it enough. Everyone involved is a politician. All of the House members who voted to impeach are politicians. The House members who voted against it are politicians. All the senators are politicians. Paxton's a politician. The lieutenant governor's a politician. You can't take politics out of it. And and here's the other thing. They can't take his freedom away. They can't fi- they're not going to fine him any money. They're not doing that. They can do one thing as punishment, and that is to remove the office holder. And if that happens, then Paxton's off to deal with his criminal trial in Houston, where I would expect a conviction because he did admit to doing what he's accused of, what he was uh, in, you know, indicted for eight years ago. 
and then we see what happens after that. And I will point this one other thing out, that there are, and I've mentioned this before, but I want to mention it again. There are 11 Republican senators in the, in the Texas Senate who have four-year terms. And if anyone thinks that they are going to get beaten in primaries four years from now, either way that they voted now, well, that's silly. Four years from now is, I mean, Jeremy, we talk about how six months is, is multiple lifetimes in politics. Four years from now is an eternity in politics. Yeah. And yeah. no one will care. No one will. Either way this goes, four years from now, no one will care at all how this turned out. No, I, I totally agree with you on that. It, well, and the one good thing that, you know, came out of this for me, all of this, has been like, you know, this has made me kind of dig in the research of, you know, Pa Ferguson, the yeah. the popular governor from the 19, you know, 1918, 1917 actually area. Uh, you know, when he got impeached, you know, like he was vastly more popular than Ken Paxton. He like, you know, think of it like a mini Trump, essentially. Yeah. Like he mm-hmm. was like he was so popular within the party. Of course, we're all talking about all Democrats. Texas was all Democratic. Of the course. only challenges were Democrat versus Democrat. But when you go back into that history, you, you know, I, as I was digging into it, uh, I came across you know, Minnie Fisher Cunningham, who is a name that I think every Texan should know a lot more of. You know, she played a huge role in helping kind of you know, marshal you know, women to kind of get involved to help with the impeachment efforts. Women couldn't vote yet at that point. But what ended up happening, Minnie, you know, Fisher Cunningham gets involved in this impeachment proceeding. Her popularity rises because she's aiding uh, the Democrats who are in office and, and that wanted to get rid of, you know, Pa Ferguson. And they needed help. They couldn't do it on their own. And so she gets involved in this thing and convinces, uh, you know, it helps you know, lead the effort. They impeach Pa Ferguson. Then Pa Ferguson says, I don't care that you impeach me. I'm going to run again. You know, I know, you know they, they had banned him from ever running for governor again, but he says, I don't care. I'm going to run again and I'm probably going to win the primary. I'm going to beat y'all. But Minnie Fisher Cunningham goes to Governor Hobby, at least his people, and says, look, you got to give women the right to vote in this Democratic primary. We'll come out. We'll throw the whole thing off. And so 105 years ago, you know, as of Thursday, mm-hmm. women actually got the right to vote. We're able to uh, get 380,000 women registered to vote. They vote in that primary, and they beat the daylights out of Joe Pa Ferguson and kill his uh, his potential of coming back and on his uh, on his comeback bid. He mm-hmm. loses by 244,000 votes. Mm-hmm. Again, I just told you 380,000 women voted. Like right. Minnie Fisher Cunningham, like. Like got women the right to vote two years before the Nineteenth Amendment, and like nobody talks about. It. I don't understand right. why we don't hear that. It feels like if there's a statue to be placed somewhere on the grounds of the state capitol, yeah, Minnie Fisher Cunningham deserves to have that, or at least one of those buildings that they're mm-hmm. putting all around. You know, Austin. It's like yep. some building should be named after the woman who two years before the feds <laughs> did the Nineteenth Amendment had women voting. And ending the political career of Joe Pa Ferguson. And, you know, what, what an amazing story. And there are so many stories like that that people just don't know anything about that, that happen. Um, that happen. And in the moment, they do get significant news coverage, but people don't remember it. It's yeah. not memorialized. Uh, there was an example over the weekend. I was in Dallas, and I, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, go to a screening of a documentary that had to do with the, the murder 
of a 12-year-old uh, Latino boy in, in Dallas named Santos Rodriguez. You know yep. what I'm talking about? Yep. It, it's amazing that no one knows about that story. Um, and I would encourage people to, to look it up. It's really interesting. There is, there is this documentary called uh, uh, Santos Vive. And uh, we watched this documentary. One of the professors from SMU came out at the beginning of the deal and says, now, before this year, how many of you had never heard this story? And we're, we're in Dallas where it happened. And almost everyone raised their hand. They had never heard the story before. Yeah. And I found out this from the filmmaker. Just interesting. Because I wanted to know how he got, because the, the documentary included a lot of footage from old WFAA news reports. And you know that SMU has the entire uh, archive of, of WFAA coverage from the beginning of the TV station. And I believe most of that is all digitized so they can search it. And the footage was really interesting. I mean, the, and, you know, the old school TV reporters were really well sourced with the police department and people in the neighborhood. Uh, that morning after what, what had happened, this kid got shot by a police officer. It was really horrific. Um, the, the reporter the next morning had so many details that it was almost exact, exactly what had happened. You know, when, you, when, when more investigation was done later. Um, what happened in this case, Jeremy, really unfortunate. Um, two young boys uh, were accused of stealing about $8 worth of stuff from a gas station in Little Mexico, in that neighborhood in Dallas, uh, which largely isn't there anymore. It's all about a all about a mile from where the original El Phoenix is downtown. Oh yeah, off of Woodall Rogers. Um, so eight dollars worth of stuff. Two cops in overnight. I think after midnight, they go to a home in Little Mexico, and the grandfather opens the door. He doesn't speak any English, and they don't speak any Spanish. Later, the police claimed that he had allowed for the cops. He gave permission for the cops to question the young boys, even though he wouldn't have known what they were saying. Young boys get in the squad car. With one young boy in the passenger seat in the front, uh, Santos Rodriguez, and his brother in the back, David. His brother's a, a, about a foot away from him. And his, um, his accuser, this cop, put one bullet in the revolver and played Russian roulette with his head and said, we're, you know, we're going to uh, get this confession out of you. You, got, you kids are going to admit that you did this. But the kids didn't do it, so they didn't admit to it. And then, and he kept clicking the, the pistol against the kid's head. And then, of course, one time that he you know, clicked the trigger, it went off and blew his head off. And this caused all this outrage in Dallas and all these huge protests. And to your point about you know, some of these mo moments in our history that everybody should remember, no one seems to remember that this happened. They had this yeah. huge fight for years. They had this, this was back in 1973. And they had these huge protests, African-Americans and Latinos joining together to try to get the police chief um, you know, out of office, which he did eventually resign, large, it seemed largely over this. Um, the police officer was tried here in Austin because there was a change of venue request because they didn't think that he could get a fair trial in Dallas. They brought the police officer down here to Travis County where he had a trial, and they convicted him of murder with malice, but he only got sentenced to five years. He served two. It's completely outrageous. Yep. Well, here's how they, and, you know, you, you are sitting there talking about this story about women voting, which people don't even know, and they should. They need to, there needs to be a book about it. I have a book on women's suffrage in Texas. In, uh, yeah.
Mm-hmm. At least it's there. At least it's there. You know how they, so I asked the filmmaker on that uh, Santos Rodriguez story, I asked him how he found that old footage in the SMU archive because guess what? Even the people who run that archive in Dallas, they don't know everything that's in there. It's, it's years worth of video. It's decades worth of video. What it was was this guy was also working on a documentary about the, uh, the Dallas Chaparrales, the basketball team. And he was get, he was looking for footage from around the same time as the that that murder had happened, and he asked and he asked this is what he told me he asked the the, the folks at SMU who oversee that archive he said oh do you have any v- video of uh, you know the coverage from this killing, and they didn't even know about it, the SMU people didn't know anything about that they said well give us a couple of days we'll we'll try to find it, and so about a week later they called him and said yeah we've got hours worth of of footage, it makes me question Jeremy. You know, our, our role as the sort of the first uh, drafters of history in journalism, if they could do this much work on a story, because I'm sure with the story you're talking about, these women voting, that there was plenty of news coverage at the time. They had to have been. Right? Oh, yeah, it was huge. And then, yeah. And, and then and, with this, and, and, mm-hmm. it's sad to say the Houston Chronicle at that time, of course, we were talking about 1918, is like against women being held to vote, right. you know, which is so embarrassing. And it's like you see their, their, their push against women being able to vote. And you can imagine the ridiculousness of the arguments of why women should not be allowed to vote. Just try to imagine yourself in 1917 <laughs> listening to Ferguson telling women he's not going to give them the right to vote. Can you imagine what that conversation was like and what <laughs> the amount of boiling that had to be in people's blood? So, yeah, the media back then, you know – they were certainly involved in it, but they weren't necessarily rooting for women to be able to vote. Right. At least people should still have known about it, right? I mean, yes, they would have we some sense. We should know these names. Right. We should know these names. Um, the, uh, the other interesting thing that that filmmaker told me about that killing and the, about the WFAA coverage, and of course, WFAA is a storied TV station in, in Texas. Yeah. Um, the uh, story... Other than the assassination of JFK, which of course happened in Dallas, that's that's the number one most covered story by WFAA in the history of the of the station. Yeah, the killing I just told you about is number two. Wow, they I mean they covered it from beginning to end, all the protests, what happened with the police chief, all this other stuff, and I do think it has I do think there's something to be said about you know trying to find these things. Um, and and memorialize them, put them in some place that everybody will will know about them and remember them. But there's also this is just me preaching it myself and people in our in our profession as well. There's also something to be thought about: how is this going to be recorded in history later? We don't yeah. know what things are going to be sort of seminal, right? In the moment, you go, oh, hey, you know, this is just what's happening today. Later, you go, oh wow, I was there for Hurricane Katrina. At the time, I thought it was just another hurricane. Yeah. Oh wow, like you know. You covering 9-11 stuff like, you know, I mean, this is obviously that was one of those things that everybody's going to remember. But does my daughter, who was one when that happened, she wasn't even one yet, actually. She was born that year in 2001. There's a lot of kids who came who don't remember 9-11 like we do. Right. So they have to be taught about that. You know, the Oklahoma City bombing, all these other things. So many of the nasty things that are happening now in our society. They've happened before. Yeah. And I hate to sound like, you know the old man here <laughs> but but history repeats itself especially if you don't this is the this is the the part of the quote that nobody says it 
history repeats itself, especially if you don't know it. Well, which which brings me to the point of like, so why am I talking about uh, uh, Cunningham now? It's like because of the impeachment of of Pa Ferguson. It's like, and we're going through an impeachment of right. another Texas politician. The first time we've gone after a statewide politician for impeachment since then. You know, so you can see, it's like history is literally offering us this reflection on the last time we did this in 1917 and not to be too thematic, but if we had a DeLorean with a little flux capacitor, <laughs> yeah. I'd be so back in 1917 listening to exactly how the Lieutenant governor of that time was handling the Senate floor and those proceedings and trying yeah. to figure out who was a juror and who shouldn't be a juror. But in the tradition of back to the future, do everything you can do to not meet your great grandparents. Because it could send, it could it could send uh, everything into a time warp tizzy. All right, that is definitely enough show here. I enjoyed that conversation about history. So it's like people need to do, do some reading, figure out well, what's and, going and, on. You know? And not to be overly dramatic about this, but it's stuff like you know uh, Cunningham. Uh, that I'm writing about in the newsletter at times. So if people haven't started you know, reading, you know, getting on my newsletter, it's free. Sign up for the thing. I'll give you little pieces of that. I'll, I'll tell you about tornadoes you've long forgot or the, the school that blew up that nobody ever heard of, uh, that nobody mm -hmm. talks about now. It's like I write about that kind of stuff in the context of all the big hitting news. So if you read my newsletter on Thursday, you knew very well about Minnie Joe. Uh, and Minnie Fisher Cunningham and her role in Texas politics. You can sign up for Jeremy's newsletter on his Twitter uh, page. Is it still the twin? P uh, twin? Is it? Is it? I guess it's the Xed one now because Twitter yes, is. Yes, I know now. we can't call it Twitter anymore. It's yeah, the it's pinned. Like, I didn't it's tweet anything tweet. this week. I Xed it. <laughs> it's the it's the pinned Xed thing on his page. It's the top thing on his page at Jeremy S. Wallace. Uh, thanks to our uh, producer Evan Scherer who will be coming back to the United States soon. We appreciate his service abroad. Uh, you should be a subscriber at quorumreport.com and houstonchronicle.com, and we will see you next time. Mm -hmm.